So, so I want to ask questions as we begin this morning. Um, if you'll keep Luke 22 open, I want to ask a question. If you were sitting in a room, this would be great in a small group. And if I were just ask you this question, how would you define the attitude of this world? So if you would just sit in and just say, what's the attitude of this world? And, and if we were to just volley back and forth some, some answers and stuff, it would probably be like this. Well, this world is disrespectful. This world is selfish. This world is, is me-centered. This, this world is about control and, and power. This world is about fame. Maybe you would say this world is about getting likes or follows. Maybe you'd say this, this world is very competitive. You would even throw words out, maybe like this word is evil and things like that. And we would throw different things out. But when we think about the attitude of this world, we definitely think that this is a very me-centered, self-centered world, no doubt. I thought of the word, competitive, the word competitive this week because I was studying this text, and you'll see why in a second. And then it immediately came back to me as I think, of, think about being competitive. I am probably, and you probably don't see this a lot, maybe my interaction with many people here, but I am, my, my family would tell you, if we were talking about someone who's competitive, they would say, it's my dad. He's the most competitive. Because my boys are not, uh, I, I do not let them beat me at basketball. All right, I think Noah has beaten, he, I hate this this morning because I got too sick, and so anyway, so they're not here to hear this and me um, brag about this. But anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally playing. <laughs> My kids would get that, um, and then they would humble me later in some way. But so uh, I think Noah's beaten me once, and th- th- there's no, there's no uh, gloating in this whatsoever, and I, I really mean this, but just to show you how competitive I is, I am, um, and I'll never forget when he beat me. He ran in like, "Mom, you won't believe this! I just took Dad down." It was pretty big, and so last week, and this is why this is fresh on my mind. Last week, Pierce beat me. Big Big Eleven thought he was cool, and so he took me down by like three points, and so that was that was the first. That was the first. So. Um, it gets so bad as this. One day, Brendan Lockett and I were having a conversation after church, and Brendan was talking to me about what he does on his lunch hour. Brendan, I hope this is okay to share, but Brendan works out, all right? And if you've ever met Brendan, of course he works out, okay? So he's, anyway, so he was telling me, hey, you gotta, you gotta be able to stay in shape because, hey, the, you wanna be able to, I think you said something like, you gotta beat, you know, be able to beat these kids in a race one day. You gotta keep up with these kids. Well, Pierce was standing next to me when Brendan said that. And so... We, we were leaving and walking off, and Pierce said something like, I could beat you in a race. And we were walking out, and I thought, no, you can't. <laughs> so Sunday afternoon, we, <laughs> we and I, I pulled the net out, side, I said, hey, hey, babe, you, you, if you'll get at this line, it's going to be the finish line in the road. And so about a 100-yard dash, okay, and because uh, I know Pierce's weakness, okay, because Pierce would have beat me in a 40. So I thought a 100-yard dash would be good. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom. See the gray hair? Uh, so, so, and so, of course, you know, the last, like, 10 yards, I, I smoked him. So, and 
so I said, I, I, and I text Brendan that day and I said, I think I said something like, I won. And so, I mean, so this week I'm reading this text and I'm like, wow, I started thinking, I do that, man. I'm like competitive with my kids. What's interesting, then I started thinking about with my girls, I let them win. I know, I know. What, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? So Eliana, Eliana and I, we will get out and race. She loves to race. And, and Eliana's got some long legs and the girl can move. And so we out racing, like she will, like, she comes close to legitimately beating me, right? My six-year-old, like legitimately. And so, but always when I get like to the last bit, I slow down and let her win. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I do the same with grace and basketball, right? I don't know. I'll deal with it. All right. <laughs> but I'm very competitive. I'm very competitive. So, so, so I started thinking this week about just this text, I thought, man, it just, it hits you right between the eyes. It, it's a gut check, right? Because we all have different attitudes that we struggle with. And, and we live in a very competitive world in the workplace, um, even in church, uh, even in the big church world, among different churches. I mean, there, there's, we, we can be competitive. It's, it's, a, it's a dog-eat-dog type of world, and we're always trying to be top dog. And, and so there's different types of attitudes that comes down to just, man, we can be self-centered a lot of times. We want to be the greatest. And what's very interesting is Jesus' disciples wanted to be the greatest among them. And so I want us to read this morning as we begin, verse 24 of, of chapter 22, and listen to what happens here. It says, there arose also a dispute among them, so this is the 12 disciples, as to which one of them excuse me, was regarded to be greatest. Now, what's interesting about this verse is what's going on. Because they're sitting at the table with Jesus, and they're in the upper room. It's Thursday of Holy Week. Jesus has washed their feet. He's bent down on his knees and taken that humble position as a servant. Um, Jesus has just had the Lord's Supper with them. He's just talked about that he's going to suffer. He's just talked about the bread at the table and said, this is my body, take and eat of this. Um, And as you do this, remember me uh, here on out until I come again. Uh, And when the kingdom comes and he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And so he's talking about all these things dealing with suffering and, and humbling himself and sacrifice and laying himself down. Of course, they didn't get all that They didn't understand all that. He's talking about the new covenant, which is about forgiveness, and so he's gonna purchase that. Now, they didn't get all that, but that's the tone of the table. And they're worried about who's gonna be the greatest among them. And before they get to this little statement here around the table, Jesus makes a statement in verse 21 before this, and he says that there is going to be one of you around the table whose hands on the table that are gonna betray me. You're gonna betray me. And we know from last week that Judas is going to be that one who will betray him and he will get arrested this very night. And the disciples are saying, well, who's who's that going to be? Who's that going to be? Who's going to betray him? Who's going to betray him? And then part of that conversation comes verse 24. Is who is going to be the greatest among us? Can you imagine that scene? 
That must have been interesting in that upper room. All the conversations going on. And then this one. Who will be the greatest? Jesus um, didn't ignore what they were disputing about. He didn't just let it blow over and not say anything. He was very interested in it. And so he engaged in what they were thinking about and what they were questioning in the tension and the struggle, right? And so look at verse 25. Listen to what Jesus does to respond to this dispute about who will be the greatest. Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like a servant. For who, he says, is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves? You see, at that table is a certain attitude. And their attitude reflects the attitude of the kingdoms and the empires of the first century world. You see, the Roman kingdom was defined by position. It was defined by power. It was defined by domination. It was defined by authority. And even its rulers, especially like a Caesar, they even claimed to be divine. And so status, position was huge. But Jesus comes in and says, all right, that's what the world thinks. That's the mindset of the world. And today's world is no different. Whether it's in positions of authority or leadership, it's all about status, it's all about power, it's all about moving up the ladder, right? In the social world, it's all about likes and follows. But Jesus says the kingdom is different. Jesus completely turns and flips the table over and changes the mentality. That's his hope and prayer of these disciples about what greatness looks like. What the attitude of the kingdom is to look like. True greatness in the kingdom of God, according to what Jesus says here, is that you are to be like the youngest. What does that mean? Well, back then, the youngest in the family, right, had the least honor. Because the oldest one had the greatest honor. By age, you had the most honor. And so the youngest one was the low one, all right? He was kind of the last one. He was on the bottom. And then, not only that, a younger child, what are they to do? They're to submit to their elders as well. And so Jesus has this view as a young child. You're to be like a young child. You're not to be concerned about your status, and you're not going to have all this worldly honor of position. Not only that, they are to be like a servant, a servant. We'll get to more of this in a second about what a servant is, but then what Jesus does to drive the point home, he gives an illustration. He says, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And so who's greater, the one who's being waited on, right? Kicking back with his feet up and getting served, or the one who's waiting tables, the one who's waiting on them to serve them? Now, who's greater in the eyes of the world would be the first, right? But who's greater in the eyes of the kingdom according to Jesus, would be the one delivering or serving the meal. And so Jesus drives the point home with this picture. And then he speaks of himself in verse 
38. And he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. When we think about Jesus, he wants us to have the picture of a servant. That's who he was. See, Jesus didn't come like a master wanting to be served. Instead, he came as one who served. And isn't that interesting? The one who is truly entitled, right, came as a servant. In our world today, this is no breaking news, but the, the attitude of entitlement continues to raise to new levels. It's so many different ways we see in our society. And yet, here is this one who is truly entitled. And yet, he comes willingly as a servant. His ministry was about meeting the needs of others, bringing relief to many. And Jesus made this clear. He gave a picture as he bent down this very night and washed his disciples' feet. He even gives it verbally. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus' view of greatness and leadership is revolutionary. As he was teaching that, uh, if we want to lead or be great in the kingdom, we must give ourselves away for the sake of others, just as he did. The Apostle Paul had the same thing in mind and the letter to the Philippians church is he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. You see, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the life of a bond slave was very well known. It's not a term we use often. A bond slave is one who suffered, who is one who was greatly committed. And Paul used this term. The apostle Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, the word servant there is a very interesting word. And Paul gives us, I think, a great picture here in the letter to the corner of the church, of, of what a servant really looks like. So that word servant that he uses there is literally the word under rower. I want to give you a picture this morning, an under rower. In Paul's day, a slave or an under rower would ride in a big ship underneath the hull, which was on the bottom level or the third level down on the ship. And so while this one would be chained to a pole, he would pull an oar to advance the ship. And so, so Paul was a third-level galley slave. That's how he saw himself, an under-rower of Christ. And so this is what Jesus wanted for his disciples. He wanted them to be an under-rower. Instead of choosing the top deck, bacon in the sun with a drink, Jesus wanted them to be at the bottom of the ship rowing, rowing as an under rower, a slave. And this is the call not only for these disciples, but for you and I. You and I. As servants, as the youngest, Jesus says this is the attitude of the kingdom of God. So I love what Jesus does. He, he just continually defines what discipleship, what this relationship 
this changed life is to look like as we walk and follow him. Now, we hear this and we're like, yeah, yeah, man, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, I want to have that attitude. But to have that attitude, that, that means there's going to have to be some change, right? Some things unlearned, some things put off, and some things put on. And so just two things I think of this morning is first pride, right? Pride. Proverbs 21.4 tells us that the wicked are proud of heart. James 4.6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is probably the second most quoted verse in our home. Why? Because pride is just real. Man, we, we deal with it. We deal with it. So we must resist pride. We must unlearn the world's way of pride, of power and position. We must resist the feel of entitlement and think, hey, I, I deserve this because I'm this, or fill in the blank. Pride's tough. Pride's tough. It's, it's like a tree. The picture I have in mind is like a tree that we're continually just trying to chop and work away at, right? We're just continually trying to work away at that. And that's what God's trying to do in our hearts. Because he wants humility. Humility is a virtue of the kingdom of God. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? You see, we're to walk humbly with God. And the New Testament throughout encourages us to put on this humility. Colossians 2, uh, 3.12 says, put on humility. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, be clothed with humility, right? Peter knew that well. Be clothed with humility. Ephesians 4.1-2, Paul says, walk in humility. So we, this is something we've got to put on. This just doesn't, it obviously doesn't come natural, right? It's supernatural, we got to put it on. It's almost like every day when we get up to put our shoes and our clothes on, we got to put this on. We got to put on humility. We got to be clothed with humility, and then we got to walk in it. We got to walk in it. Oswald Saunders, in his great book of spiritual leadership, that's the title, quotes William Law, and he says this Let every day be a day of humility. Condescend to all the weaknesses, all the infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties, love their excellencies, encourage their virtues, relieve their wants, rejoice in their prosperities, compassion at their distress, receive their friendship, overlook their unkindness. That's hard. Forgive their malice. Be a servant of servants and condescend to do the lowliest offices of the lowest of mankind. Proverbs 15.33 says, before honor comes humility. What an important principle to live by. That's what Jesus longed for. He says, hey, be the youngest. <laughs> be the servant. That's the attitude I want you to have. And so here's what Jesus is going after here in this text, I, be I believe, with his disciples. is He wants them to have a humble faith, a humble faith. And so he addresses this attitude I want you to be the youngest. I want you to be the servant. And he says, I've modeled that for you. I've been that servant. 
And then look what he says in verse 28. This idea of faithfulness now, honor later, right? And so look what he says. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I love what Jesus says here. This is a form of praise and encouragement to them. He tells them, hey, you stood by me through my trials. So I think there's a little encouragement here. He's telling them, have you been there with me through the trials? But this also is a picture for them to say, listen, you've stood and you've witnessed my suffering. You've witnessed how people have treated me. You've witnessed the insults, and they're really going to start witnessing it, right? This very night, you're going to witness the, the resistance, the opposition, the persecution, and you're going to witness my death. And he's saying, you've, you've witnessed on all this, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, and, and so kind of the same mentality, humility, then honor, right? Jesus is going to be humbled, Right? To the max. He's going to give up his life. He's a servant and gives him life, his life as a ransom. And he is going to be granted this kingdom by the Father. And he says, I'm going to grant you the kingdom as well. And so this idea of example, this idea of model comes up because that's what Jesus was. He was that example of a servant, a model of that. And he says, listen, humility comes before honor. But it's also a promise to them as well. Remember last week when he takes the cups at the table and he says, I will not drink or eat of this again until the kingdom comes. And here he brings that up again. But in that kingdom, he tells them that you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we could sit and think through all that means and look at different texts like Revelation 20 and different things like that of what that means. I think simply what that means is they're going to be given roles in the kingdom of God. I think we all will. We'll all have positions and different roles and, and there will be honor in this for them. And so what do we see here? Their faithfulness will be rewarded in the kingdom to come. And that's to come. So faithfulness now and honor later. But look what he says next, because this is all going to start connecting. Look at verse 31. He turns to Peter, and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to Jesus, Peter did, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Right? Let's go. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will now or will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. You imagine sitting at this table? My mind's reeling if I'm one of the disciples. I'm like, whoa, this has been quite a meal. <laughs> right? One of us is going to betray him. 
There's a dispute of who's the greatest. Jesus just said in the Passover meal that his body's the bread and his blood's the cup. My mind's reeling at this point. And now he looks at Peter and he starts throwing out prophecy, right? That you're gonna deny Christ three times by the end of this day. And oh, by the way, verse 31, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Wow. Look at verse 31 real quick, because this, this is a very interesting verse. First of all, the word you there, this is significant. The word you there, we don't see it in English, but if you do some research and look at this, that word you in the Greek is plural. So here's what this means. Even though he's speaking to Peter, okay, he's actually speaking to all the disciples at the table, every single one of them. Okay? So this is for all of them. But he directs it to Peter, and he says, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So who does this remind you of? to a small group. Who's this remind you of? Job, right? Job chapter one. This, this is exactly the same thing, much like Job. Jesus is telling Simon Peter that Satan has demanded to have all the disciples, right? So here's what we know about the enemy. He's powerful. He's not God, okay? But he's powerful. He can influence us greatly, But to do that and to go after us, to cause our faith to do what? According to verse 32, to cause our faith to fail, he, asks, he has to ask for permission. That's what this means. He did it with Job. He does it here with Peter and the disciples. Satan cannot hurt us any more than God permits no doubt, though, if you're like me, this brings up a lot of questions. But here's what I want you to know. There is a purpose, okay? If you look at verse 31, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That's important. What's sifting wheat? You want to throw that up, Terry? So there's a great picture, right? This guy's sifting wheat. That's what this guy's doing. See, grain would be sifted to remove the other elements that were not wheat, so it suggests well, let me do this before I get to that point. So you see this? So you get this round little thing. And so everything that's not wheat is, and usable is coming out, right? Okay? And so the good wheat is, is staying on top. You go to the other one. Here's a couple guys in Egypt doing the same thing. And so you've got some good wheat on top there. And so on this sifter, you've got these, this mesh type stuff, and it's sharp. It's got some edges to it, all right? And so the good wheat is, is staying on top, the stuff they're going to use. And so when you think about what God permits Satan to do, this idea of sifting wheat, Satan's aim is to make the disciples' faith ultimately fail. And so he throws people into this sieve, and he shakes them around over these jagged edges until they are torn until they're weak, until they're desperate, to the point that they let go of their faith and fall through the sieve as faithless people right into Satan's company. That's what Satan wants to do. That's his goal. That's his goal. 
But what's God's goal behind this? What's God's goal behind this permission that he gives? His goal is to strengthen us. And you might be thinking, why do I need to go through that to be strengthened? It's God's plan. It's his plan to renew us, to transform us, to sanctify us, to perfect us. And see, here's the deal. True faith cannot fall through the mesh. And so as long as the disciples hold to their faith, they will not fall through the mesh. You see, this is the victory that overcomes Satan and his sifting, right? What is it? First John 5, 4, our faith, right? Our faith. And so that's what's going on here. And so through trials, though very unsettling and undesirable, they have this refining effect. And God intends to bring his church to perfection through those, through affliction, through temptation. And that's what he's doing here. Ultimately for his glory and ultimately for the sake of his body, that they would be strengthened for the kingdom. And so what does that mean? What's, what's God doing here? God, <laughs> through this, is taking pride and then letting it fall through the mesh. And what is he developing on the top of those who are faithful? Humility, right? You, you with me on that? It's one of the ways he starts getting rid of that attitude of selfishness. And starts making us what? Servants. And just as Jesus was a model of those trials, he's saying, listen, you're going to go through these afflictions. But there's a purpose. There's a purpose to the sifting. But he tells Peter in all this, I love what he says, this is cool. In verse 32, I have prayed for you. Cool shift in words here. This you is singular. Okay, it doesn't mean he's dissing the other disciples, okay? Because in John 12, he's praying for all of them. So that's not what he's doing here, but it's a very personal word, right? It's almost like this morning, him just looking personally at you and saying, George, I prayed for you, right? Natalie, I prayed for you. I'm praying for you. How cool is that to know that you're on Jesus' prayer list? How cool is that? Hebrews tells us we are. Right? He is interceding on our behalf. And right here he looks at Peter. He says, I've prayed for you. God is always stronger than the enemy. And Jesus and the Father will not just stand back and watch to see if we will have the strength to endure the faith. And so Jesus will pray and he's confident that the Father will answer. And he tells Peter, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's the deal, right? Let's not dress church up. And we've made, the American church has, has made this idea of the church and everything Christianity at times a joke. Can we just say that? That's a little strong, but I'll say it. Here's why. We put pastors up here, right? And everybody else is to come, and we get all dressed up, acting like we all got it together, right? We got to sing pretty, right? Um, at some places, if, if the worship pastor's voice was a little off this morning, 
I don't know how that would roll, right? But I'm thankful for it, very thankful for it, right? Um, but we, man, we love to dress this thing up, dude. And, and, and too often, um, the, the kingdom of God here on earth looks awfully close to the kingdom of the world. Too often. Jesus says right here, man, you're going to trip, Peter. You're going to fall. And you know what that really means? It's, hey, listen, it is not all about having it all together, right? What this tells me, right, is everyone in here, if Peter is going to trip and fall, okay, the guy who saw Jesus in the transfiguration, if that guy's going to trip and fall, I'm going to trip and fall. We're all going to go through tough stuff. We're all going to be sifted. It's part of God's plan. But there's a purpose. And we need to know that Jesus is praying for us. So why? So that our faith would not fail. That's the goal. Don't give up through the struggle. Don't give up when you trip and when you fall and you mess up. Don't give up. Man, remember the song we sung? Grace, grace, God's grace. When the seas are gonna be rough, they're gonna toss, they're gonna turn. But man, God is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. May your faith not fail. And there's hope because he says, hey, the goal is that you wouldn't stay in your failure. Hey, the goal is that you would get up and turn again to the point that you can go and strengthen your brothers. So that's the goal of the sifting, right? That's what he wants to do, Jesus wants to do. And he says, Peter, you're gonna go through that. You're gonna fail, but you're gonna recover to walk again and strengthen the church. And oh boy, do we see that. Peter does that through Acts, through his letters. We see him strengthening the church. And that's what Jesus came to do. You see, here's the deal. God saved us and he holds us forever in his hands, in the hand of the Father and the Son. Nobody can snatch us from him. He gives us that kind of salvation, that kind of saving faith. But here's the deal. He also is about us trusting in him daily and he is there to strengthen and to uphold that faith daily, daily, daily. That's what he's doing. And he's praying for us. And so the strengthened here in Peter is gonna become what? He's gonna become the strengthener. He will break, God will, Peter's pride, his self-reliance in Satan's sieve, but he does not let him go. He turned him, Peter's mission, or excuse me, he turned Peter around, he forgave him, we see that, that's gonna happen, all right, after he denies him three times. He restores him, he strengthens his faith, and now Peter's, mission is to strengthen the faith of others. And that's exactly what he wants to do with us. Exactly. This is God's purpose for you. That's his purpose for the trials and the struggles and the afflictions and everything you walk through. That's the end goal. Your faith would not fail. You would turn and walk with Christ again. 
and go strengthen others. That's his goal. And so as we wrap up, look at the last section here. He says, he said to him, to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, criminals, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. They got them, right? We're ready, man. And he said to them, it's enough. You see, Jesus sent them before with nothing, right? They were to depend fully on him. So I've asked the question most of the week, Jesus, what, what are you saying here? Okay, is this figurative? Is this literal? There's, there's debate over that. I think there's some figurative. Um, and Jesus is affirmed by the disciples that they lacked nothing when they went out. Remember when they went out by twos and, and they would go throughout the, the villages and the community and, and then if they weren't accepted, if they didn't ha- find a house of peace and they were to wipe their feet of it and move on. And, and so that's what it was like then. But I think what Jesus is saying now is it's about to get dangerous, right? You're about to face some resistance and persecution unlike any other. You're about to face danger in the days ahead. Why? Because they are going to regard Jesus as a criminal. And the sword or something like that. Um, I, I think the point that he's saying here is, hey, listen, you're going to get caught and thrown into the sea. Be faithful. And when they show their swords to him, he's like, guys, enough. Enough. That's very interesting here. I'm going to throw this in. He, I don't know if Jesus is just saying enough to the sword, but I wonder if he's just like enough with this whole meal at this point because of all the discussions. That's kind of how like I would be. But I think what he's saying is he's saying, guys, enough of that talk, right? Enough of that. Because what does he want from them? He wants a humble faith. He wants them to distrust in him through this time. He wants them to have that kind of faith that doesn't fall through into the enemy's company. But he wants them to stand strong. And so church, this morning, that's what Jesus calls for us. He wants that kind of faith, a, a faith of humility. People who want to be the youngest, who, who want to be a servant. That that's what we want to go after. That's the attitude that we have. And when things get tough, he doesn't want our faith to fail, but as we depend on him, a savior who's praying for us, that we would trust that what he has begun, that he will be faithful to complete, because that's his goal for us. So let's pray.